Today, if you'd remain standing, we're going to read God's Word together, our sermon text for today. It's going to come from Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. Uh, While we're finding that, I want to thank JT for leading us today in worship. Pastor John is headed towards sabbatical uh, now, and uh, for the next several weeks, people he is equipped uh, to lead in his absence are going to be leading us, and we appreciate JT doing such a fine job today. We begin reading in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And now you may be seated. Ours is a utilitarian age when it comes to religion. For us, the acid test of belief is simply this. Does it work? As a result, we are drawn to those expressions of religious devotion that better us, that make us better husbands or wives or mothers or fathers or workers or neighbors. We're drawn to churches that provide the goods and services and activities that make us feel better about our families. We are drawn to preachers whose sermons are filled with nuggets of practical wisdom that we can leverage throughout the week in order for us to have our best life now. And because of that, utilitarian religious types never get around to asking the most fundamental question when it comes to religious matters. Who is God? And the second question is like unto it, What does he demand from me? Well, the answer to the question, who is God, would take a lifetime to answer, and any answer that you might come up with would only scratch a scratch on a scratch on a scratch on a scratch on the surface of the topic of God. But the question of what does he demand of me, the second most important question, is really pretty simple. He demands our worship. In fact, he demands and he deserves 
our worship. He is worthy, you see, of glory forever. Amen. Which brings us to our passage today. Our passage today is the conclusion of a three-chapter section of Romans that, frankly, I've dreaded going through from the moment we decided we would preach through Romans. Because it, it, it wrestles with grand questions that we're just not accustomed or really equipped to on, on Sunday morning in many respects to wrestle with. Questions of God's sovereignty over all things, including whether someone embraces or rejects Jesus and salvation and man's responsibility for uh, embracing or rejecting uh, salvation. Specifically, Paul, the one who wrote the book of Romans, has filtered these questions through God's purposes in Israel's rejection of Jesus in his time and the Gentiles' acceptance of Jesus in his time. And his pastoral purpose in all of this has been to help the increasingly Gentile church, because remember, the Jews by and large were rejecting Jesus, to help the increasingly Gentile church not look down their noses at their fellow believers from a Jewish background. In other words, a big purpose of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is to address ethnic strife in the church, racism. While at the same time, his concern is to encourage Jewish Christians to not lose hope that the Jewish people will one day embrace Jesus. And it's all led to this inevitable climax. Paul's exaltation of God in light of who God is. And from Paul's little recital of worship that concludes this section, we're led to ponder three truths about the glory of God. Here's the first one. God's glory is magnified in His mystery. God's glory is magnified in His mystery. Keeping in mind that part of Paul's pastoral purpose in this section is to challenge Gentile believers to stop being jerks to Jewish believers and to encourage Jewish believers not to give up on their family and friends who are unconverted. Paul says this beginning in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, before we can really fully appreciate what is going on here and how God's glory is being magnified in these words, we're going to have to put some handles on three phrases. We're going to have to put handles on a partial hardening has come upon Israel. We're going to have to put a handle on the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And then we're going to have to put a handle on all Israel will be saved. So let's just take those one by one as they come to us in the text. First... The phrase, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, references really a main theme of this section, that God hardened Israel's heart against Jesus, and thus, as people, they rejected him. But not all of them. Because, you see, Paul was a believer in Jesus from a Jewish background. Many of his readers of the letter to the Roman church were believers in Jesus from a Jewish background. So he's saying that God hardened Israel's heart against Jesus, but only partially as evidence. Paul's saying, think of me, for instance, as evidence. Look at yourself in the mirror. Not everyone who was Jewish had rejected Jesus. That's what the partial hardening phrase means. The second phrase to deal with is when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. This references Another main theme of the section, namely God's election of people 
to salvation. Now, there's a lot of debate here. I'm not going to pretend that there's not a lot of debate. But if you believe as I believe that Paul has taught in this section that God in Christ chose those who would follow him, then you by default accept that there's something of a counter clicking down with every person who comes to Christ and that one day it will roll to zero. Everyone who's going to be saved will have been saved. And when that clock rolls to zero with all of the Gentiles who will be saved, then the Jewish hardening will be lifted and the Jewish people will come to Christ. That will be that day when that happens. That's what the fullness of the Gentiles has come in means. And it all points to, ultimately, our last phrase, all Israel will be saved. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm not going to pretend again (laughs) that there's not debate on this point, but I think the best understanding is that Paul is saying that when the last Gentile is saved, the hardening of Israel will be lifted and all Israel will be saved. Now, I don't think he means us to understand all Israel as meaning every single Jewish person alive at that time will be saved. The phrase all Israel is used to just basically refer to the people in the Old Testament and not every single person. But I think it does mean that there will come a time when the object of faith for the vast majority of the Jewish people on planet earth will not be the Torah or the temple, or the sacrifices of the law, it will be in Jesus. So, Paul is saying that for now, most, but not all, of Israel's rejected Jesus. He's saying that this will continue until the last Gentile person appointed for salvation has been saved, and that at that time, most of the Jewish people will come to know Christ as Savior. But he's actually saying more than all of that, which is the main point here. He's saying something we can't overlook. He is saying that this partial hardening of Israel and the Gentile acceptance of Jesus is the means by which... Israel, the Jewish people, will come to Jesus. And you're free to sit there and go, what? That's the craziest plan that I have ever heard of. I mean, why? Why that way? Why that way? Well, let me give you the answer as to why it's that way. And I don't want to get too technical, but, but here's the answer. I don't know. But I'm in good company because Paul has already told us, I don't know. I don't know. In fact, he tells us he doesn't know when he calls it a mystery. He tells us that in the unknowable wisdom and unsearchable mind of God, this Gentile reject, or the Jewish rejection of Jesus and the Gentile acceptance of Jesus was God's plan all along. And he underscores it all with a quote from the Old Testament that flows through the rest of verse 26, where he says, As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's saying God has made a way for the gospel to find its way into Gentile hearts, and yet at the same time still fulfill his promise to Israel for them to be his people and for him to be their God. And how he has chosen to do it. This plan is is a mystery that is embedded in the purposes of God. A mystery 
Paul himself is willing to admit that we can see, but whose reasons will never be known. And it is this mystery of God's unsearchable plans that inform his words in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He believed the mystery of God magnified his glory. What he didn't know about God made God more worthy of glory. How can that be? In this age, when we can know anything, or at least believe that we can know anything, simply by looking it up on our phone, how is it possible for mystery to be anything more than a liability. And I would simply say that it is precisely because we believe that we can know anything by looking it up on our phone that makes God's mystery more noteworthy and more praiseworthy. Our access to information, you see, has has created the illusion that we can know Everything that there is to know about a given situation or issue or topic we look up. And we believe that having access to that information makes us experts. Even though we don't know how to process the information, because we've got access to the information, we think we are experts. If you do not believe that we think that, talk to your doctor. Because your doctor has been told over and over again, well, this is what's wrong with me. And I read it right here. And he's going, oh, why did I waste all that time in medical school? We think that we are experts because we know the information. Well, I hold here in my hand the sum total of what can be known about God in the physical world. Yet, the God who makes himself known on the pages of this book is sharing but a fraction of himself. There is so much about God that we can't know, that the prophet Isaiah says we can't even understand, and that, over and over again in Scripture, is what prompts praise. Over and over again in Scripture, the fact that we can't know God, that His his mind is not our mind, His ways are not our ways, the fact that He is beyond our comprehension is what drives us to worship Him. In a world where information is easy and where we can cultivate a false sense of believing that we know more than what we do, it's refreshing to worship a God whose voice calls loudly and clearly to us, but from the mists of eternity, making himself at once familiar and yet wholly incomprehensible. God's glory is magnified in his mystery, which leads us to the second point to ponder about the glory of God in our text this morning. God's glory is magnified in his mercy. Again, keeping in mind That Paul's chief concern here is to remind Gentile believers of the debt that they owe the Jewish people. Paul writes this beginning in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, the unconverted Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, the unconverted Jews are the beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 
where the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's saying that the Jewish people may indeed be your enemies now because of their opposition to the gospel. And, and that's true. If you read the, the pages of the New Testament critically, you understand most of the opposition to the early church did not come from Rome. It came from unconverted Jews. He's saying they may be your enemies now because of opposition to the gospel, but remember God's promises to Abraham concerning their special place among the globe's people. And remember that those promises are irrevocable. With Paul's point being that his readers should never forget that even as they suffered abuse at the hands of unconverted Jews, God was not yet done with him. Now, at the risk of sidetracking us, I feel like I have to say here that we are not meant to take this to mean that Jewish people can do no wrong in the eyes of God. There are streams of theological thought, some might call it nonsense out there, that basically treat the Jewish people as if they could do no wrong in the eyes of God. Don't forget that Paul, in the text that we are reading here today, calls them, in the text, the enemies of the gospel. These verses aren't meant to indicate that our place as Gentile believers is less than a lost Jews now, or will be less than those of Jewish believers when eternity comes. Nor are these verses meant to inform foreign policy, because they have nothing to do with the secular geopolitical entity known as the nation of Israel. The Jewish nation is not on Paul's mind here. The Jewish people And these verses are simply a reminder that any Gentile believer, and unless I don't know your story, we're all of us Gentile believers, owe a debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. Because without God's promises to Abraham, and without the Jewish people, we would never have known Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Paul makes that point clear in verse 30. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, excuse me, jump back up, for just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, it was because of their rejection of Jesus that the the gospel effort moved out into the Gentile people beyond just the Jews only. Because of that, Paul says, now remember this, verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Long and short of it is this. God will one day show the Jewish people mercy by lifting their disobedience, their opposition to the gospel, and by showing them mercy through Christ, which he says here is, by the way, the same way that you came to Christ. That's what verse 32 is saying. We all come to him via mercy. So God had shown the Gentile readers mercy by revealing Christ. And he is saying that there will come a day when he will show the Jewish people mercy by revealing Christ. And it is this mercy which informs him in saying these words. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. There is a very real tendency on the part 
of those of us who have come to Christ to begin thinking that we are somehow deserving of that salvation. Or at least thinking that others, those people out there, are more deserving of damnation than we are. And yet, the very best of us and the very worst of us are saved by the same amount of the same thing. The mercy of God. It is by virtue of God's mercy alone that we are saved and God's glory is celebrated when we will just stop our preoccupation with self and our worth and remember it. That God, through no merit of our own, has given us everything in Christ Jesus. Finally, God's glory is magnified in His majesty. Let's look again at the final words of chapter 11. Look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is saying, God is everything. Let that sit for just a moment. God is everything. No one can fully know Him. No one can ever put God in the position of owing them something. All things flow from Him and through Him and back to Him. God is everything. His very Godness brings Him glory. And the ultimate point God is making is that His Godness should be our deepest comfort. All of His Godness. What we can know and the big chunk that we can't. His mercy. Everything that encompasses God should be our chief source of deepest comfort. We should take comfort in God's Godness for our salvation, because the very idea that we could earn that from God is ludicrous. We should take comfort in God's godness because the very idea that we could keep our salvation without His mercy is ludicrous. As preachers have said for hundreds of years, and as I know I've said to you, I say again, if it were possible for me to lose my salvation, I would have done it before breakfast this morning. We should take comfort in God's godness as the basis for our ability to deal with life 
Because God's godness means that all things serve Him. All things serve Him. All the good things that you celebrate, that you enjoy, serve Him. To remind us that that this thing that I am tasting as a joy points to ultimate joy in God. All things serve Him, even the good things. And even the trials. The difficult circumstances of life. When He says that for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, He's including the trials, the tragedies. They all serve the purposes of God. Which I don't know about you, that helps me deal with the tragedies. We've all experienced them. That helps me deal with the tragedies because I realize I don't, I live, I don't live in a random world. I, I don't live in a, in a world where everything is controlled by the laws of physics. I, I don't live in a world where God is at the mercy of evil. I live in a world where everything serves the purposes of God because from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. That idea of God's godness helps you get out of bed in the morning. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God who through Jesus has made it possible for you and I to be forgiven And to call this unsearchable God our Father. Let's go to our Father now.